0: Bonjour, I'm Terence Galenter, your American friend in Paris, welcoming you to Café Terence in Paris's Troisième Arrondissement. My guest today is Richard Bradford, author of biographies of Philip Larkin, Kingsley Amos, George Orwell, and most recently, and almost back to back, two of the most despicable human beings ever to put a pen to a piece of paper. <laughs> uh, Norman Mailer and uh, Patricia Highsmith. So uh, welcome to Paris. Welcome to the program. And how did you pick these two characters to spend a a, a good part of your life with?
1: Um, Well, I suppose you've answered the question in your um, preliminary account of things. Um, I I began my uh, career, if you want to put it that way, as a literary biographer by writing about... um, authors whose work I enjoyed and whose I who I admired as writers. Uh, but neither Kingsley Amis nor Philip Larkin were themselves uh, particularly wonderful individuals, as I found when I researched archives. And it became more and more evident to me that very often, uh, the more interesting it became if successful writers could be found to be unusual, uh, and if not a, and just unusual, unpleasant individuals. Because there's a sort of interplay or, uh, shall we say, curious relationship between their persona on the page and what lies behind it, if you see what I mean.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned actually in, in, the, in the case of both of these people, they seem to require a serious conflict in their life to get about the uh, the work of writing, well, we can talk this in, in a broad in a broad brush about each of them on that specific point, and then we can talk specifically beginning with Norman.
1: Okay. Um, well, regarding Highsmith, it, she I, I I suppose you could say in a simplistic way because she was she had to live two lives, and in an obvious sense because she was a lesbian. And although at the time, uh, the legal status of lesbians, particularly in the States and in mainland Europe, was vague. It wasn't always or straightforwardly a criminal offence, as it usually was with male homosexuals. But at the same time, socially and in other circles, she had to mix in two distinct groups. And... As with most people, this had an effect upon her personality, but with many, um, they became accustomed to it. But she became, for want of a better word, almost psychopathic. She enjoyed um, shifting between the person that some people thought they knew and another individual who many people wish they hadn't met at all. And I think this filtered into her fiction as well in an obvious case, the talented Mr. Ripley. Sure. An individual who pretends to be someone he isn't and ends up being not in a uh, a straightforward sense evil, but, uh, shall shall we say, murderously bizarre. And she did things. She didn't actually kill anyone, but she uh, almost connived, connived in her lover's attempt at suicide she walked out of the room went off had sex with another woman and assumed that her lover was dead uh luckily for her she was rescued but it's almost as though she didn't mind her dying yeah Again, i would say
0: that, the, that behavior certainly in, informs her writing as we'll we'll talk to it in a minute let's go back to norman uh yeah tough tough guy the life of norman mailer uh, who wrote a book called tough, tough guys don't dance uh, he should have written a book called "Tough Guys Don't Beat Their Wives," which would be, I you know, perhaps, some more uh, <laughs> a valid, morally, moral. But, but here's a, a nice Jewish boy from Brooklyn. Uh, oh, the, the goofy uh, the, the name he had, the whole the Yiddish name, a melech, which is means king, and it was Norman Kingsley Mailer, and he spent a, a lifetime kind of trashing that impression, not wanting to be a nice Jewish boy from Brooklyn, but at at, at the same time uh totally consciously aware of who he was and when he went to harvard at a time where a lot of people aren't aware 25 percent of the student body was still jewish the quotas came after the fact there were too many jews so he had to uh, you know cut down it wasn't they weren't prescribed at the very beginning and then when he was there he kind of played off that he's kind of an intellectual but with this jewish uh, kind of street smarts smarts. talk a little bit about his background and go back to his father and how it began to inform this personality that he developed.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, regarding what you said about Harvard, uh, th- there was there was a sort of, um, shall we say, undercover anti-Semitism at work there, because a, a lot of Jews who went to Harvard at the time were absolutely brilliant, and the meritocracy worked in their favor, as it should have done. But at the same time, as we... As with Mailer, although he seemed not to notice it at the time, he was ghettoised. He ended up uh, in the same dormitories as people he became friendly with. And it was only later when he reflected on it, he, they all seemed to be Jews. <laughs> and uh, the, the university had made sure they stayed together in small groups, rather than the ones who came from private schools and, you know, were wasps, who... who were encouraged to work to mix in different circles and so on and so on but it didn't it didn't seem to sort of um affect him at all but his background um he never really made much of it after he 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 got beyond his teens um he played along with his family rituals his wife his wives had to uh display that they could cook kosher food mainly for his mother because he adored his mother his father was a slightly uh, uh shall we say unusual individual because he was a fraudster and they didn't really talk about him very much because he he continually lost half of the family's money not to, not that they were particularly well off anyway and norman helped them out so yeah he had he had a he had a slightly odd background and I suppose or he, he didn't talk much about his father. He was probably a little embarrassed, but he, there, was no, there was no sense in which he wasn't attached to him. But I I, I suspect he saw uh, something of his father in himself because he became something of a chameleon in that he would shift personae just for the sake of it. He played different roles for different people. I like to play with people. Yeah, he he... He liked to irritate by uh, being unable or making it difficult for people to pin him down to see what he was going to do next or who he was or where he was coming from and so on and so on. And perhaps there was just something something of his father, who, as I say, was a fraudster, a con man, that might have rubbed off on him there. Mm-hmm. Possibly. But again, he, he, he loved his mother to the end. In a way, oh, as she
0: did him, I don't want to call she, it a do- she, the doting Jewish mother. No, no, but let's, yeah, Norman no, was let's, her little baby.
1: Yeah, let's leave Freud out of it as well. <laughs> she, she was the only woman who he was ever faithful to, in the sense that he never did anything uh, that was even mildly offensive to her.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, generally, this is public persona. Well, he went to He went to Harvard. He was in uh, his major was aeronautical engineering. Yeah. Uh, and, and then I did a minor in literature, but it, it's kind of interesting. He was he was quite a good student as a, as an engineering student, as a mathematician. Uh, mm-hmm. I can't, I can't imagine wanting to fly an airline uh, an airplane. He had anything to do <laughs> with, but uh, but he got he was published in the Advocate. He had a couple of short, very short stories. He was her man, and the greatest thing in the world. Uh, you know, teacher, talk uh, Davis. Talk a little bit about the. How he began to form his literary personality at, 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 with the experience at Harvard.
1: Well, there's there's no evidence that before Harvard he read anything that was even faintly serious. Uh, he he might have looked at the old thriller or the old western, but that was about it. He had he had no overt interest in what one would call literature whatsoever. And he enjoyed aerial aeronautical engineering because he had he had a, a, a talent for mathematics and mechanics. I mean, um, a year before he went to Harvard, he had one of the highest IQ ever recorded for a, a, a young man of his age. Um and he also enjoyed the, the idea of being associated with aeroplanes because. He thought he'd impress girls Mm -hmm. because he wasn't necessarily... uh, Isn't isn't
0: everything in life about impressing girls? (laughs) (laughs) If we want to really reduce it,
1: huh? (laughs) It it was him, even at that age. But once he got to Harvard, uh, at the time, you know, you you took courses, as there were then, now they're, I suppose, called modules, uh, which weren't directly related to your main degree. And he found himself mixing with and talking about people who were doing literature courses. And again, he leaves no record of why he uh, became interested in studying literature and why he started writing short stories, some of which are very interesting. But again, it seems to me that um, it was a projection of this personality trait where he could become someone else by writing something that wasn't the truth. It's Tom Ripley. Yeah.
0: At some level. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) At at some level. Uh, Yeah. The advocate was this major uh, uh, publication at Harvard that he, uh, I guess he won some, uh, some money, some prizes for that, for that work. Yeah. Uh, Did he very quickly realize that he was onto something that there was some kind of a, a a gift uh, to communicate that he had?
1: and um, again, the 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 records are fairly threadbare between his graduation, uh, him meeting B, and uh, B being his
0: first of six his wives. First,
1: his first wife, yeah, eventually became his first wife.
0: This is his only Jewish he, wife. This might have been for his mother.
1: Uh, yeah, his only Jewish wife. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, and at the time he he wrote a few things and um. For, I suppose, opportunistic reasons, when he was first cl- called up, he said that uh, he was a- he was unable to um, become a soldier because he was writing a novel that would be useful in terms of propaganda. And I suppose he, he had in his mind a novel similar to what would become The Naked and the Dead, except they didn't want to go to the Pacific or Europe to be able to write it. So he tried, he tried to get out of conscription by claiming that he was part of the uh, U.S. propaganda campaign. He was also he as, was,
0: somebody characterized him as as the worst the worst army cook he'd ever experienced.
1: Yeah, but he was he was
0: he wasn't on the front lines. He was he was in the Philippines. I guess he was later in occupied Japan. And sorry, there
1: there there are disputes about that. He. Um, B- before the end of the war in the Pacific, I mean, he, he didn't fight on the front line, mm-hmm. but his um, his platoon was close to the front line. Mm-hmm. He claims to have opened fire a few times. No one is quite sure of this at all. I mean, there are no other witnesses, mm-hmm. but he was he was with soldiers who were on the front line and um, who did tell him about what it was like to be on the front line, because The Naked and the Dead is a good book because it's still, uh, but, but, oh, absolutely. Okay. One one of the best World War II novels uh, ever written, I think, because it's, it's documentary realism. He he picked up an enormous amount of information, partly by making notes uh, from even before he got to the Pacific, he was talking to his fellow servicemen and just taking notes about where they came from. And noting to, to see see if he could in some way reproduce their accents and their um, habits and so on and so on. So you
0: he think was, he was consciously pre- preparing oh, yeah. to
1: write he, that book? He, he was planning it. Okay. Uh, he was, he was getting, getting the train across uh, um, the US because many of the letters he wrote to B, she he asked him he asked her to keep them because they were basically the raw material for the novel he would write when he got back. I mean, um, some of the descriptions of the landscape uh, that you find in his letters to her are almost identical, not quite verbatim identical, but too similar to be coinc- coincidentally uh, the same. You know, he, he knew that he was going to put this stuff together when he got what, back. What was to
0: the, uh, the reception uh, in, in the States when the book first came out?
1: Oh, it got. F- Absolutely fantastic reviews. And it made him a lot of money as well, even at mm-hmm. the beginning. I mean, he 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 went from being a nobody to a minor literary star. Because soon after... Well, at, at the same time, it was going through press. And it was actually published when he went to France on one of these uh, ex-servicemen's grants. And it went to the top of the bestseller list when he was in France. Mm. You know, he, 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 was, he was reliving... Um, what happened to his hero, Hemingway? He was off on the European tour and he shot to live for his superstardom while he was in France. It, it made and by the time he came back, he was rich, relatively speaking. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it made him.
0: And the uh let's, let's talk a little bit about the wives. Let's start with B. That uh I don't seem that he was terribly violent towards her, but the next wife in line got uh, was nearly killed, anyway. Uh, Adele.
1: Adele. Adele. Uh, Again, um, accounts. Without without being
0: Sigmund Freud, what's going on with him and and this violence towards women?
1: It's impossible to say because uh, with B, the night it happened, and this isn't me trying to excuse it, um, he was out of his head on alcohol and drugs. Nevertheless, he. I, it, I think it was a clear case of attempted murder. Mm-hmm. He tried to stab her with a knife. Well, no, he didn't try to stab her with a knife. He did. But he, he stabbed her in the stomach, in, in in the lower chest with a knife, and it missed her heart by about a quarter of an inch. So that uh, few centimetres, she would have been dead.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And he wasn't that out of his head. You know, he was, he was going through his act just before this, he asked people at the mad party to divide themselves into two groups, anti-Mailer and pro-Mailer, and then he stabbed his wife. <laughs> not that she, not that he disliked, him, you know, the way the way that she had gone one way or the other, but he was relatively articulate in the sense that you could ever imagine him being articulate in that state. So yeah, um, he he was he was, I suppose, horribly when you say typically but at the time a ty- typically macho individual mm-hmm. that's the way he behaved towards women and this was you know the end of the 40s 50s and early 60s uh,
0: just coming back to naked in the dead i, I want to talk about uh james jones and that which became a great success both cinematically and obviously literary uh the oh, uh, yeah. Uh, from here to eternity uh, did that arouse uh, jealousy in him that all of a sudden his work in his mind might have been co-opted he... <clears> that he
1: he he did there was there were several cases in which he uh, he 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 threatened jones with violence on a couple of occasions in letters it, he 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 thought the naked and the dead would make a fantastic film and that's the reason he first went to Hollywood soon afterwards, and it resulted in later The Deer um, And he met Louis B. Mayer in the, in the expectation that The Naked and the Dead would be uh, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer's next project, but Mayer didn't want it. Um, I mean, <laughs> he could have written a brilliant comic novel about his escapades <coughs> in Hollywood, but The, uh, the, the Deer Pop isn't comic at all. Um, but yeah, back to Jones, he was disappointed that it didn't follow on uh in the way that From Here to Eternity did with uh, you know, a a, a film that remains something that continued, continually shown on a Sunday afternoon again mm-hmm. and again and again and again. Yeah, um I, I mean the the, the
0: well, Yeah, Port Lancaster, you have a very young Monty Clift. Uh, there's an yeah. awful lot going on from a cinematic value uh, in, in that film. Yeah. I don't know who, how, how, you know, I wouldn't have been involved in the casting of the Naked and the Dead. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's just a landmark in um, in, in film history. And I, I probably because of the film brought more people to the book than we might, might have ever imagined in, in the early 50s. Yeah. Oh, you, you yeah, know, you mentioned yes,
1: the- you're right. You know, the film made the book, I think.
0: Yeah. You, know, you mentioned you mentioned the Deer Park and um, uh, my friend, uh, David Thompson, you may know without the P, the British uh, film critic. And we're having a conversation re- recently and talking about uh, Norman, because uh, I, I made a comment relative to what I said at the beginning about his being a despicable human being. Uh, and David rose up to challenge me. He said he did despicable things, but he'd been nice to him. Uh, and he, pr- particularly since he's writing about film, came back to the deer park so let's talk a little bit about about the deer park and uh, which is a result of his experience in Hollywood with the Sam Goldwin's oh he made some money out there you know the thing in Hollywood is once they agree to let you write something even if you never get it produced you're constantly collecting money
1: yeah well the 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 the, the, deer, the deer park is interesting because it's both moralizing and hypocritical. In that um, Mailer writes it as an attack upon the corruption and the sexual sexual exploitation that took place in Hollywood. But when he went there, he enjoyed it. He had a fantastic time as part of it. So when he uh, invents uh, this character who exposes it as hideous, he was going against what he'd had a fantastic time enjoying. For, during his time there and he was there on two occasions I mean the, the, there was a hilarious episode where he and um his Marxist friend Malachi were over there and they they met Louis B Mayer and he said to him okay they thought he they was they, they were going to be asked to write the screenplay for the naked and the dead but Mayer wanted a completely different film and there was sort of a look of puzzlement and he said okay you've got two offices and a uh, a separate room with a bed in it. Oh God, he wants us to sleep over. <laughs> and then he said, "Okay, what sort of secretaries do you want?" I said, "Well, <laughs> secretaries who can do the job." He said, "No, do you want uh, Spanish, blonde, ginger?" I said, oh, "I don't really care, because in Mayer's view, secretaries were uh, sexual aides, basically, sure. and the bedroom was what uh, where they would." Service the two writers it was absolutely preposterous uh, the this, mayor uh the the, the the hideous individual that he was you know a serial rapist oh, this was ter- me too long before me too became known
0: terrible terrible human being uh, speaking of terrible yeah. human beings i want to jump a little bit i want to skip over temporarily armies of the night in the vietnam protest and get to the execution of song which uh was at that Time when Tom Wolfe was writing so you know, somewhat this new journalism was evolving. Uh, yeah. Talk about that book, Gary Gilmore, and, and how important that was to his, his career.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's an it's an intriguing book, um, and I mean, he 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 introduced uh, a term in relation to the armies of the night. History is a novel. The novel is history. In other words, blur the borderline between what is fiction and what is pure documentary. And um, the Executioner's Song was a a perfect example of that. He never really veered from, or at least very far from, um, documented uh, facts regarding um, the previous life and uh, the trials and eventual execution of Gary Gilmore. Mm-hmm. I mean, all this all this material was on, on on file. He interviewed an enormous number of individuals. So it was almost as though he was doing a biography of Gary Gilmore, but he wrote it as though it were a novel.
0: Well, he was a narrative it, nonfiction, I guess.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, you, but, but the interesting part is that although he didn't tell untruths in the strictest sense of the word, he gets into the mind of individuals and he shows you perspectives from their point of view where he could never have known this from the material that was simply documented. So you can tell that he is telling lies in the sense that he could never have known this, but at the same time, he's basing it on what appears to be the truth. So he's taking advantage of fiction where you feel that the characters are real, but the characters were real. Uh, and at the same time, he um, in some way manipulates their actuality to make them more exciting than they were or make them more, make the reader more sympathetic to them that they otherwise might've been.
0: They can make, give you them. access to the person. You know, in, in terms of making the story more of a narrative, uh, sucks the reader in, not sucking him in, taking advantage, but pulls him in yeah. to be interested in learning, uh, learning some of the facts, yeah. I, I would guess, in my opinion. Uh, I, I don't want to, I want to I talk about Patricia Highsmith, but uh, before we get there, maybe we'll have time to come back to Norman. How do you think history uh, will look at Norman? Although it's, he's already been dead for a while, so it's beginning to set itself up. Let's say 50 years from now, when one were to examine uh, the life and career of Norman Mailer, uh, how would he be seen, in your opinion?
1: I, I think I think there will be an enduring legacy of Norman Mailer because he was so bizarre. <laughs> I mean, uh, you've already mentioned the new journalism, as it's sometimes been called, mm-hmm. but that's the flip side of um novel as documentary. He continually um, destroyed the clear border between writing about truth and inventing things. And no one of that generation, although there were others who did similar things, did it so frequently and uh, outrageously as Norman Mailer. So I think when literary history comes to look back at the mid 20th century and developments that occurred at that point, I think they will see that Norman, I think they will accept that Norman Mailer all but invented a new genre of his own. He wasn't the only one, but he was the most outstanding. (laughs) And if they look at it closely, you can see that it's a projection of his personality, who is Norman Mailer. He was partly uh, too unreal to be true, and often too true to t- be unreal for god's sake
0: well so we we shift to uh, if this were like a saturday night live skit with bill murray it would be who was more despicable so we start with norman and now we have patricia highsmith a alcoholic vicious anti-semite predator, uh, sexual predator uh who wrote at least three damn good books that became three damn good movies so let's oh, talk
1: yeah,
0: a little bit about. Well, I'm thinking Carol, Carol Ripley, and or Plain Soleil also as René Clément did, and obviously Strangers on the Train. So let's go, let's just get a little take on her going back to her period in Texas, uh, and then let's jump forward and talk about her literary career.
1: Yeah, I, I, I mean, her, her childhood in Texas, if we believe her account of it, which she offered mainly to friends later on and there are no um, (sighs) documented uh, other accounts really, but she seems to suggest that she became, or she acquired the notion of a split personality because of what the way she was brought up. She, she was, She was divided between a a, a family, uh, her her natural father and uh, her stepfather, and she never quite knew how they felt about her. And she even claimed that her natural father wanted to have sex with her, or perhaps did have sex with Mm -hmm. her. And we're never certain about the authenticity of this, but there's something of that there. So again, you often wonder if... Um, I Smith when she talked about this was giving an account as though she were writing a novel about her past but it's interesting she didn't have a boring past certainly no. but how much she invented it and how much it did have uh, a traumatic effect on her is still open to debate
0: but I would say that you know for example if we uh, we look at Ripley we look at Bruno Anthony if- by Robert Walker in, in that wonderful film, uh, yes. this infusion of who she was, you know, and um, and who she was writing about. Uh, I, I want to go back, uh, talk to, at the very beginning about her first success, *The Price of Salt*, which she wrote under the name of Claire Morgan, and people she became somewhat of a pop star in the lesbian uh, lesbian self yeah. culture and yeah. it later became a movie uh, called *Carol*. Uh, far, far ahead of its time in 1954. Impossible. Well, to even to... yeah. Talk about that book and then we can jump forward to the movie. I think it's a work of genius. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you say... Maybe somebody doesn't know, like briefly terms... synopsis, give a quick under, uh, hit on the film. What, what is the book about?
1: Well, it's about, it's, it, it, I, I suppose, a brief synopsis. It's about a, a well-off uh, middle-class woman of, I suppose, early middle age, but we probably wouldn't call it that, but, you know, late thirties, who is, as a say, married, but has to cover up her lesbian inclinations, mm-hmm. and who, who meets a much younger woman, uh, who is also a lesbian, in the uh, department store. And it's about their taut relationship. And I suppose you can call it a fairy story, because eventually they end up together. We don't know what happens later on. Mm-hmm. But the curious thing about it is that it was based partly on fact because um when Ismith was herself working in a department store, she became aware of the presence of, she didn't introduce herself to this woman, rather like the one who would appear in the novel. And she followed her to her house in where fairly wealthy. Uh, suburb of new york state and she i suppose she stalked her Mm -hmm. and the woman eventually committed suicide probably because she too was a lesbian and it's a bizarre relationship she's married with a child
0: there's all kinds of issues that were going on
1: yeah yeah yeah. as
0: you say she was Um, some degree complicit in that death
1: in a way yeah although they didn't have a relationship Mm -hmm. There's no, there's no evidence that the woman knew that uh, Highsmith was there, which makes, which makes the novel even more peculiar. It's almost as though uh, Highsmith wanted to take it a stage further, far beyond the fantasy that she was uh, living herself. Mm-hmm. And it's, 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 it's intriguing in its own right because of that.
0: It took over sixty years to get it to the screen. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, a Todd Haynes' film, Carol, uh, the first uh, of her books that came. This was uh, discovered by Hitchcock, uh, "Strangers on a Train," uh, and with, uh, to me, a magnificent performance by Robert Walker as uh, as Bruno Anthony. I, I never quite got the Farley Granger casting. That was the weakest part of the film, but the uh, and it was a, a level of homoeroticism in that that was never physically there, but lurked on the thing. And, you know, where Hitchcock had to make decisions, he probably, if you were making the film today, would have done some some things different. But there's just an uh, over-bearing quality in Bruno of manipulating the whole scenario, which is uh, wonderful.
1: Oh, I agree. I mean, it's it's, it's a brilliant novel. And very often uh, a film either improves upon an average novel or ruins an excellent novel
0: mm-hmm.
1: in this case the two although very different are beautifully matched
0: yeah um, i would think i mean yeah, i'm interested in i don't you know in, in reading the book again uh you know in in this in the context of your work and her work and uh and then beginning to imagine how the film would be made today you know where those things could go yeah. but but absolutely loving the performance that Hitchcock got out of, uh, out, out of Bruno. Yeah, just... I, I,
1: I think because Hitchcock was working within restrictions regarding sexuality at the time, it made sure. it a better film.
0: Yeah. It's like, you know, it's not it's seen. is so much. what you know, am like saying this.
1: about you know, the implied homoeroticism, sure. the fact that it is, and could, could only be implied makes it far more effective.
0: I mean, you go back you look at yeah. you look at, at Lubitsch's films for example and there's always some a door opening and closing or in the notch the cigarette girls are coming out adjusting the the stripe in their hosiery you know what we don't have to see yeah. the activity we know what went on and i think you're right i think well, some, sometimes the implication is much more powerful than the uh the explication
1: yeah and the the the, the superb moment as far as i'm concerned is where um Bruno Anthony is sitting there in the audience at the tennis match mm-hmm. and there's only him looking directly at the one player. The yeah. rest are moving their oh, heads, well, yeah, side heads. And you think there's a single obsession and he's keeping quiet about it. And that's homoeroticism for you, sure. implied but never directly stated. No one else, because they're watching the ball, notices right. it.
0: Yeah, our heads are twist, twisting left and right, you know, constantly. Yeah, that's yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. a nice observation. Uh, uh, talented Mr. Ripley, uh, before Anthony Mengele's film, which I thoroughly enjoyed, uh, René Clement made a film called Plan Soleil, uh, starring Alain Delon and, and Maurice René, which I, I think was the yeah. first time there was an effort to get that film to the screen. Uh, briefly, uh, for anybody who hasn't seen it, uh, talk about the talented Mr. Ripley.
1: Uh, I, I think I think it's one of the best novels of uh, might might seem a you know preposterously over the top declaration. Declaration, one of the best novels of the twentieth century, mm-hmm. because again, it, you, you can't say it's just a crime novel. It isn't. It's far more than that. A murder of sorts, if you like, a killing takes place rather than a murder. Mm-hmm. It's not a murder in. The traditional crime thriller sense of the word, but the way in which it employ it, it explores ambition, class, sexuality, um, and shall, shall we say, um, European and American high culture, means it's not just a thriller. It's a novel about um, the state of America and a state of mainland Europe in that period. But by introducing Ripley into it, it sends all sorts of peculiar ripples through it that, and achieve something that could never have been done with, say, a realistic novel of the type that might have been written, I don't know, even by Gore Vidal had
0: he been introduced <laughs> Another good friend of Norman Mailer to to bring Norman back into <laughs> the, the discussion, <laughs> but uh, I, I you know Mangella's I I was a big fan of Anthony Mangella and unfortunately we lost him to the to that surgery the brain surgery very early in his life, uh, and at, at the beginning I, I couldn't quite get around Matt Damon as as Ripley, but then it it started to work on me and on future viewings. Uh, I I kind of see it. And then we had another guy we lost early, uh, Seymour Hoffman, who plays Freddie Miles. But all of this, and and again, we go back to her, this flip-flop of identity of kind of who are you, who aren't, you know, is is Ripley gay? Is he straight? Is he bisexual? Uh, Or is he just someone that uses whatever happens to be in front of him to advance his his agenda?
1: Yeah, you're quite right in the sense that he is... uh, overusing over the same term but chameleon-esque tendencies are endemic are, 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 are within the character of both authors and emerge in their work as well um in a, in a number of mailer's books and particularly in the Talented of Mr Ripley they're not Ripley isn't deliberately playing roles to create. A particular effect or because he's a con man he doesn't really know where he's going uh okay he's socially ambitious so are many people but he has forgotten what he perhaps intended to do within the first two or three chapters and he's in a world of his own um which he partly controls and which partly controls him as well it is in, in in terms of plot and narrative, it's a work of absolute genius, I think.
0: Thanks for joining us. And for all things Parisian, visit my website, paris-expat.com. That's paris-expat.com. And subscribe to my six free weekly newsletters. Until next time, I'm Terence Galenter, your American friend in Paris.